Would you join me in prayer? Merciful God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the word we just heard read and the great encouragement to be in community. Now we know that um, this is what we were meant for. We were meant to be in these friendships like Beth described. We are meant to be people who lean into one another, who grow together, who experience this fellowship, which we uh, entrust to you now in this teaching moment. You've gathered us here with kids and families, with moms, especially on this special day. And yet we're mindful that um, the text is alive and it's always speaking to us. And so would you open up our hearts to have this speak to each of us, myself included, in a way that brings glory to your name. May the words of my mouth and the things that each of us consider in each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Happy Mother's Day again to all of you. Uh, In all the years I've served as a pastor, I have been reminded that Mother's Day is not always easy for everybody. Uh, There is plenty of uh, sadness around Mother's Day, too. It can come from, this is your first uh, Mother's Day without your mom. It could come from uh, many in our community who long to be moms and have not yet had that opportunity. Uh, It can come from a place where you're wishing your relationship with your mom was better. You're wishing that she could be with you today, and you can't. So I just want to say for a a brief moment, um, yes, we honor moms for sure. But we also hold in tension just that reality that sometimes Mother's Day is tough. Father's Day is just like it too. We'll take a moment and acknowledge that. But if you want to just kind of hold that in your heart, we'll hold out moms in prayer later on. But that is a reality that we're in today. So I encourage you to embrace one another uh, in a little while, just in that spirit, uh, not knowing where someone may be coming from, but just celebrating but also honoring uh, that which each of us brings in to this moment. Uh, Beth, thanks for the word about the women's retreat. Guys, I think we need lavender bath bombs for Malibu. (laughs) Can anybody help me on this? Men's retreat is in Malibu next week. We have one spot left. If you want to help me with lavender bath bombs, I would appreciate it. Uh, It is Mother's Day, and we are talking about a mom in our text. Um, I was just thinking this morning, uh, Jesus starts out this text like a mom, like he can't get time alone. (laughs) Like his disciples are trying to find him, other people are trying to find him, and he's like, leave me alone, I just need a minute to myself. And it's funny, because uh, I grew up in a very, very busy household. Um, I'm the oldest of four. So uh, my mom uh, raised uh, myself, my two brothers, and my sister. My dad was around too. Um, And I'm going to tell you a story, and if you grew up with brothers, you'll get it. If you didn't grow up with brothers, this will sound appalling, but just go with me. Um, My brothers and I are all like one to two years apart. We're pretty close in age. My parents had four kids in five years. Woof. So all three brothers, we were sharing a room together, uh, the bedroom upstairs. My parents have a two-story house, so we're upstairs. And uh, we had everything in there. We had bunk beds, we had our toys, we had books, and we had this big toy chest. I have no idea where it is. I think it disappeared, and after I tell you the story, you'll understand why it disappeared. It was a big wooden toy chest with uh, a metal frame around it, you know what I mean? Like a wooden toy chest where the outer edges of it were metal. And so we knew that when we were playing up there, we could get whatever toys we wanted out of there. Only toys go in the toy box. Don't put books in there. Don't put other stuff in there. And so toys would go out. They'd come back in. Mom wants a clean house. We're trying to abide by this. One day, as brothers tend to notice, we found that that lid was really heavy. And when you slammed it, it made a really loud sound. Pretty cool. When you're, I think at this stage, I'm four. My brother James is three. And my brother Chris, I think, is a toddler. 
So we start to slam the lid, like really, really loud. Guess where this is going? The lid gets slammed. It's loud. Mom is downstairs. She hollers up at us like, what is going on? What are you guys doing? And what do brothers yell when they're up to something they shouldn't be doing? Nothing. We're not doing anything. And so my innocent brother, James, uh, is next to me. And I say, hey, James, let's start. Let's, let's play a little game. So the game we devise is brilliant, of course. Um, hold your hands out under the lid and slam the lid down as fast as you can, but pull your hands out of the way, right? So he, he's, he's got the best athleticism of all my brothers, so he's able to pull his hands out no problem, right? I don't know where this next idea came to me from. This is appalling, okay? If you grew up with brothers, you understand. This just happens with brothers. We're having fun with the hand thing, and so I say to James, hey, James, I want you to put your eyebrows on the edge of the toy chest. How did I convince him to do that? I don't know. I should have been a hostage negotiator in another calling. Put your eyebrows on the toy chest. May that phrase never be said to you ever or ever uttered in your house. So guess what? Boom. Crying, hollering, totally got his eyebrows on the toy chest. He did not get out of the way fast enough. It's totally his fault. Mom comes busting upstairs because she heard the slam, slam, no slam. And she's running up the stairs. She turns the corner. And if you can just picture this for my poor mom, it's me and my two brothers. James is laying on the ground. There's blood like coming off of his face, off the forehead. So you're thinking head injury. We're going to the hospital. Like, great. I'm standing there. I'm probably crying because I'm like, I don't know what just happened, even though I totally know what just happened. She has to put together this crazy scenario of events. She has to discipline us, all this thing. And here's my favorite image of the whole thing. My poor brother, I remember this. He had to walk around with Band-Aids over his eyebrows for like two weeks. So imagine explaining that at the grocery store. Like you see one of your friends and you're like, well, the eyebrows, they, they had to go. That's an awkward conversation at school. But this is what moms do, right? They enter into a crisis. They have to figure it out. They may not have a full perspective on it. They kind of have to be part field medic and part investigative detective. Like, what in the world? What did you guys just do? And it's amazing because there's some universal truths about moms. Moms, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, moms when they're engaged with their calling, moms when they're healthy, moms when they have opportunity to live into their calling. There's lots of stuff out there that really disrupts a lot of these things for moms. There can be economic injustices. There can be brokenness in family systems. So I'm talking about moms in the sense that we would love for our moms to be able to live into their callings, kind of like the way my mom did, and kind of like the way the mom in our text does today. She has a kid that she loves, and her kid gets sick. It's a kind of sick that nobody around her can really explain. The, The scriptures tell us it was a spiritual sickness. It was a demon that somehow entered into her life. And yes, because the scriptures talk about it, we believe that this actually happens. Her daughter caught something awful and otherworldly, and her distress is palatable. I mean, you can feel it as you read through the text. But her hope is not in being able to kind of remedy directly what's happening to her daughter. That is something that she wants. But her hope is not in a healthy kid. And hear me on this. Her hope, she discovers, lives in a person. And it's the person who comes beside her in her moment of deep need and transforms her life and she transforms his life that I think is the heart of the story and that gives us an opportunity to honor this great text about a mom on Mother's Day. 
So if you want to uh, open up your bulletin, there's an outline in there that we're going to kind of follow along as we go through this text. And the thesis, kind of the, the framing statement for all this that I want to offer you guys, is never own a toy chest. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> By uncovering what is hidden, no distance is too great for Jesus to draw him to himself. Draw us to himself. By uncovering what is hidden, no distance is too great for Jesus to draw us to himself. We're talking about people on the margins. We're stepping into this new sermon series about what life is like on the margins. And the challenge for us, I think all of us individually and as a church, is to see where those parts of our hearts are that are far away from God, that are on the margins. Yes, we can talk about people on the margins in terms of their economic status and all these other things that's important. But what we really need to look at is this hard discipleship question today of where am I trying to keep something from Jesus? Where am I trying to hide and obscure his presence in my life so I can kind of keep something to myself? This woman, and we're going to call her mom, brings everything to Jesus. She gambles everything and she receives more than she ever could have imagined. So the first uh, section in your outline is just hidden. Uh, discovering what's hidden is a little bit longer way to put it out there. Now, most people, when they come to this text, this is not an easy scripture text to talk about, they wonder, number one question, why does Jesus call this woman a dog? I mean, did you catch that? Like, he just lobs this insult grenade at her, right? Like, what is going on there? We're going to get into that. I'm going, to, I'm going to do my best to kind of try to put some explanation around that. But before we can get there, as is always the case whenever we look at a tricky scripture passage, we need to look at what happens before, what happened after, kind of what's in the larger context here. So the theme for the wider context, this is kind of a subheading, is you got to do some digging. Can you say that with me? you got to do some digging. In Jesus's case... The digging he is doing is into mom's heart. He's trying to understand who she is and what her motives are. That's why I think he uses that term dog, but we'll get there in just a minute. Jesus does this all the time when he meets people. I mean, you've had this happen to you before, right? You've seen a counselor and they're able to just kind of speak into your heart in such a way where you go like, oof, like that is a deep level of insight. It kind of makes me uncomfortable, but I'm really glad I'm in this moment right now. Maybe you had a manager, a boss that kind of brought out the best in you and his or her ability to do that was largely built on how well they understood you, how well they could get to the heart, do some digging, figure out what really motivated you. Jesus does this all throughout his ministry. Last week, remember we talked about how Jesus denied, or Peter denied Jesus three times. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What's Jesus doing in that moment? He's digging He's trying to help Peter see something true about him that he's not going to see otherwise. This is Jesus doing some digging. He's got to do some digging. Say it with me, church. You've got to do some digging. Nicodemus, another person that Jesus meets during his ministry, kind of a Pharisee type, a little slippery, gives him some kind of slick, polished questions. He sees him and he loves him and he offers compassion to him and he does a little bit of digging and he finds out what Nicodemus is really after. Right before this dialogue with mom, where we're talking about today, there's a moment when Jesus has a skirmish with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are, are basically calling him on the carpet about washing your hands. So if you're a germaphobe, you love this part of the scriptures. The Pharisees are saying to Jesus, hey, your disciples are eating and they've not washed their hands. And Jesus is going, what are you, my mom? Like, what is this? Like, you're t interrogating them about their hand washing? 
But a very important part of their culture was ritual cleanliness. Wash your hands. Make sure you're prepared for your meals. Don't bring anything unclean into it. That theme of uncleanliness is happening right before this passage. And so I want to highlight something for us from uh, just a few verses before. This will be up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Mark 7. And I'm going to read starting in verse 20. Remember, he's had this dialogue with the Pharisees. They're mad at him because the disciples haven't washed their hands. Your disciples are unclean. And Jesus says, hold on. He said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. And he lists off a whole bunch of sins that every one of us should be able to relate to, at least a couple of these. And then he says this in verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What's he saying to the Pharisees? Y'all are worried about your hands being washed. I'm worried about your hearts. I'm worried about what is starting at the core of who you are that is causing you to be this unclean, this disrespectful, this mean to other people. It is about the heart. Jesus is telling the disciples, he's telling the Pharisees, it is about the heart. Can you say that with me? It is about the heart. The headwaters, the source, that's what he's getting after. So apply that now to mom. What are the headwaters of mom's heart? Well, what are the headwaters of any healthy mom's heart? The absolute thriving and love and joy in seeing her children thrive. 100%, 1,000%. That's the headwaters of any mom's heart. Any mom operating out of a place of health and well-being, 1,000%, that's what they care about. And so, when she comes to Jesus in boldness, and we'll talk about this in just a sec, is she carrying with her fear and anxiety and a sense of desperation? Absolutely. But what is that rooted in? What's in her heart? It's for this little girl who's not well, who's inexplicably not well, who's beyond the care of any physician that she could have found. And she's desperate. And her desperation is brought about by the kind of thing that every mom can resonate with, that care for her kids. When's the last time you were desperate? When's the last time you faced a feeling of desperation? One of my worries, one of the things that... I sleep pretty good at night, but if I, cut, if I stayed up at night worrying about things, this would worry me a lot, is I worry that in our comforts and in our environment, especially here on the east side, we've inoculated ourselves from desperation. We're not desperate for food, most of us. We're not desperate for a lot of things that so many in our world are truly desperate for. I had a friend call me this week, and he was desperate. Good buddy of mine, I see him a couple times a week. Our kids go to school together. He calls me, I'm stuck in traffic. Hey man, what's up? How's it going? And he says, I need you to pray for me. My son just went to the hospital. And I'm like, what? Your son, like he's, you know, 18 months old. I just saw him at the baseball game last night. What, what, what do you mean he's in the hospital? Well, turns out he had ear infections, he had a fever, he had a whole bunch of stuff happen, and he had a seizure. So get thee to a hospital when you have a seizure. And I'll never forget this. My friend said to me, I'm on my way to the hospital, and I'm so desperate right now, I couldn't think of your name. Like, I knew I needed to call you because I wanted someone to pray for me, but I'm so in that moment, I could not think of your name. I'm looking at my phone going, uh, uh, uh. That's desperate. 
And thank God that we have a friendship where we could do that for one another, right? Thank God that we have someone that we can reach out to. Bethany, when's the last time you faced desperation? And when's the last time you put yourself out there like my friend did? When's the last time you said to somebody, I am up to my eyeballs. I just need some help. I think my friend took incredible courage to do that, incredible humility to do that. And I long for more of that in my own life, and yet I worry that we have been inoculated to feeling desperate. And it will take moments like this, when our kids get sick, or when we lose our job, or when something majorly disrupts our plans for the days, that we will finally go like, you know what? Like the mom in our text does, I need some help. I need a lot more help than I got inside of me. I think that's one of the most amazing things about this text is we don't know a whole lot about mom, about what's brought her to this moment, but we do know that she is sincerely desperate for the help of Jesus. And every one of us will face moments like this, and I wonder how we will respond. Will we respond as courageously as she did? Interesting, uh, the text tells us that she's a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. Syrophoenician is a great Scrabble word. She is not a member of Jesus' tribe. She, she and him, they would not have hung out. The text tells us he's up in Tyre and Sidon. If you look at a map, that is way to the northwest of where Jesus usually hung out. It's along the coast. It's north of Israel. It's almost into Jordan. That's far away. And what the text is telling us, oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Lebanese families rejoice. This is a part of the world that Jesus would not have known. Think about the last time you got lost and you're wandering around a neighborhood and you can't find your phone to look it up on Google. He's lost. He does not know, or he's not lost. He knows exactly where he's going. But this is not familiar territory to him. What this means is that mom would not have had the cultural framework even to relate to Jesus. She's coming from a Greek background. She probably had a whole other system that she tried to rely on before she came to Jesus. She probably went to a Greek doctor and said, help me out here. And the doctor said, I got nothing. This is beyond my ability to heal you. Maybe, as people often do when they're facing a desperate moment, she got religious. And she went to a Greek temple. Remember the pagan gods? All these supposed figures that could answer human beings in their desperation. You offer the right sacrifices, you get what you need. It's a transactional religious experience. Maybe she did that. And her daughter's still not well. She's still sick. What happens when you try system after system after system to try to fix something and it just ain't working? Your stress goes up, does it not? This should have worked. This should have brought a solution. I should have been able to say the right words and make this thing happen over here. We have all been there. You tried a dating relationship. You did all the right things. You brought flowers. You sent some notes. You met the parents and you still broke up. You ate kale and broccoli for dinner every night and you still got sick. You got tons of money in the bank and you got debt up to your eyeballs. Every system we will face will fail us. Do you hear me, church? Every system we face will fail us. But the person that this woman comes to, that mom comes to, is unflappable. He will never fail. She goes to the source. When she is desperate, she goes to the right place. Hear me on this, church. Mom is perfectly positioned to encounter Jesus because she's experienced system failure. She is perfectly positioned to have this big old spot in her life open up and go, I don't know what to do with this. But Jesus, you're right there, and I, I, can, can you help? The medical system failed me. The religious system failed me. My friends failed me. Can you just, just right here, can you, can you jump in 
And Jesus says, oh, you bet I can. And it's going to be better than you ever could have imagined. How can you apply this to your life? The next time you are facing something this week, a problem, a stressor, someone you don't like at work, don't put it on yourself. Don't do it. You get mad at a system, you're tired of HR giving you the runaround about your next promotion, you're tired of fighting with your healthcare provider, Jesus, you take it. Matthew 11 is one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. Can I tell you how often I pray those verses when I'm stressed out? Jesus, your burden is easy. Your yoke is light. Would you just take whatever this thing is that I'm struggling with in my tiny little brain, would you just take it? This week, your homework assignment is, you got a problem, you go with it to Jesus. When the system fails you, you go right to him. Lord, your burden is easy, your yoke is light, bring that into my life. That's what mom models for us as we uncover her hidden motives. What's coming at her from the heart. Now let's make the transition to this next point where we're talking about God revealed and life restored. This is the good part, man. This is where the the, the happy ending starts to come into play. Turn back with me to your text, and we're going to read from uh, Mark chapter 7 again. I'll start in the second half of verse 26. She, the mom, begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child laying in the bed, and the demon gone. If you want to also open up uh, to Matthew 15 and kind of keep your finger in that page, that's the parallel account of this text. Remember, the Gospels record different events in different ways, same events in different ways. So open up to Matthew 15. We're going to go there in just a minute. Here's the question. Did he just call her a dog? Yes, he did. Is Jesus being a jerk? Kind of. It's very out of character for him to be a jerk. What's actually going on here? Some scholars debate that, you know, this dog word is more of a term of endearment, you know, like, oh, you cute little puppy dog. I I don't think the context really supports that. I think that's a nice way to kind of let this all off the hook. What I want to go back to is our previous point. What's Jesus trying to do in this dialogue? He's trying to draw out the source. He's trying to get her to bring her heart. What are you really after here? What's really going on? And I want to say this too. Jesus never wastes a word. He makes no throwaway statements. There are no throwaway words of Jesus recorded in our scriptures. Unlike all of us who can have YouTube moments and verbal gaffes and things that go viral and we say stuff and it can just get so messy, Jesus doesn't waste a word. And so in this moment, even though it's a hard word to hear, it's getting to her heart. So she asked for healing for her daughter. He says, let the children be fed first. What does that mean? This is where I want you to go to Matthew's account in Matthew 15. In his accounting of this dialogue, he says his motivations much more clearly. Jesus says, I was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he clarifies for her. And we may not admire this because we're so used to saying, you know, Jesus came for everybody and all this, that, and the other. That's still true, but in this moment, I think we're seeing him refine and expand his mission in a powerful way. He's saying to her, look, I hear you. I know you've got a serious problem, but I can't help you because I'm not here for you. 
Now, it's really hard to imagine Jesus saying that, but remember, he's digging. He's trying to get to the heart. He's having to turn some soil over. What does she say back to him? Great clapback line. Even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs. That's such a great line. That is a bold, stand up for yourself, preach it, throw it down kind of line. Because she's saying to him, in essence, I hear you, Jesus. I still submit to you. But I think you are underestimating how much people like me need your grace right now. I think you are underestimating how desperate the world is to receive your healing and your mercy. You think you got a narrow window of people that are going to hear about grace and they're going to receive it. I'm telling you, it is a bigger problem. It's like the movie Jaws. We're going to need a bigger boat. She shows by her pushback to him that she gets an incredible theological reality that his grace is limitless. His grace is limitless. He's got grace enough. She's saying this to him. Jesus, you got grace enough for your people. You got grace enough for my people. You got grace enough for the people down the block. You got grace enough for the entire world of problems. And no, I'm not part of your club. I'm not in your tribe. But your grace is for me. Will you give it to me? And it's brilliant how this plays out. Because remember, what has completely failed mom before this moment? All of her systems. All the other sources of strength and wisdom and insight and Google. And when she meets resistance yet again, she doubles down. Not on the system. Not on, oh Jesus, I tried to make this work with my doctor and it didn't work. What's going on? She doesn't go to a system. She goes to a person. She doesn't go to a system. She goes to a person. Are we people of a system or are we people of a person? Are we people who rely on systems to get stuff done for us, to accomplish our sense of worth and well-being, or do we rely on a person? And I know it's not always that simple and it's confusing, but really that's what it boils down to is where is the source of power that we find actually trustworthy in our distress? Jesus Christ is head of the church. He is Lord of all creation. And when a system lets his people down, what do we do? We use our wisdom. We try to find our way through the system. We're not anti-systems. But we don't put our hope in solving that Rubik's Cube. We put our hope in saying, Jesus, this is yours. How would you lead me through this? Whenever I face anxiety or fear, I can create majestic to-do lists. I can create phenomenal work back plans. I can have all kinds of boxes to check, right? And I can do that, and I should do that at times. But what actually brings me peace in my deepest anxiety is going on a hike and just listening to Jesus. Going on a run and just asking for him to speak clearly with his voice. Being alone with the Lord, with the Father. That's what actually gives me peace. My checklist only compounds my anxiety. I offer that as just a simple word of encouragement. And I think this is how deep faith is really made. When our systems are called into question, like this woman experiences, like mom experiences, and when we have the opportunity for Jesus to stand in that gap and for us to trust him that much more deeply. At the very end of the Matthew passage, uh, Jesus celebrates her. He celebrates mom. It's amazing. And I, I want you to just to picture this with me before I say the phrase. She pushes back on Jesus And then I think he just like, he claps his hands with joy. His face lights up. He looks at her. He loves her. He's so thrilled that she's made this conclusion in front of his disciples so that they can all finally get it. And he says these amazing words from Matthew 15. Woman, great is your faith. 
Great is your faith. Will you say that with me? Great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. Your homework assignment this week is to go do something risky and bold. And on the other side of that, hear from the Savior as best you're able. Great is your faith. You gambled with this hard conversation at work, helping an employee get up to standards, and it was tough, and you worked really hard. Andrew, great is your faith. You spent time investing in a friend who was on the margins, and they didn't have a place to belong to, and you invested in them. Emily, great is your faith. You took care of people in your neighborhood that you could drive by every single day that need to hear about Jesus and need the help that you can offer them. Thomas, great is your faith. We... I can't say that to us. We need to hear that from the Savior, do we not? We need to hear that in such a way that it changes us and it changes the people in front of us. Don't you think it changed mom's life to hear that? And I would make the argument that it changed Jesus' life. Because this is the final part. He gets a new mission. The daughter's healed, everything's great, but there's more to the story. The dialogue between mom and Jesus is a turning point. We see this especially in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus, he checks himself. He wasn't wrong before. He'd been looking at the people of Israel and saying, these are the people I've come here to serve. And he starts to expand that. He's hinted at this, actually, in Mark 2, chapter seven, or verse 17. He said, I have not come for the healthy, but for the sick. The doctor comes for the sick. He's, he's been thinking about this. And then all of a sudden, he hears that phrase, the lost sheep of Israel, and he goes, you know, there's a lot more. I'm needed in more places than this. Case in point, later on in Matthew 15, Jesus feeds 4,000 people in one sitting. Do you think they set up a checkpoint and made sure only Jewish people got in there? Probably not. Jesus looks out at the crowd. Scriptures tell us this in Matthew 15, and he says, I have compassion for these people. I have compassion for these people. His heart is that much bigger. His heart is that much more inclusive for the hungry, for the desperate, for the people who are straining their necks to hear every single word. I have compassion for these people. You want to pray for something this week? Lord, give me compassion. Give me compassion for people that I don't really like on the other side of the political spectrum from me. Lord, give me compassion for people that make more money than me. More money, more problems. Lord, give me compassion for my mom, for my dad, for people that I'm experiencing broken relationship with in my life right now. Lord, make me more compassionate. Not just for my tribe, not just for the people I like, for the people that you put in front of me. When I'm desperate, Lord, give me compassion. Let me take on that value that you took on. Now let's go back to mom for just a moment as we close. Let's picture her in this crazy journey. Before she meets Jesus, I mean, picture your own mom, right? Her face is just kind of pinched. Her, her, her forehead is furrowed. She's stressed. She's faced a systems disappointment. She's got a sick kid. It's tough. It's tough sledding right now. And then picture her after Jesus has come. And she's been right there on the edge, going back and forth with him, fighting for her daughter. And when, when Jesus' grace lands on a desperate heart, everything changes. Her whole life changes. And I want you to think about this with me as we close. 
Who rejoices more over a sick kid being made well than mom? Who gets the full weight, the significance of this incredible miracle? If you know the answer, say it with me. Mom. For whom is God's love crystal clear, unmistakably clear, and her own desperation is just merely a tool in his loving hand? Say it with me. Mom. Who models courage and faithfulness and perseverance for us? Mom. And this gives me great joy to think about this. Who will spend the rest of her life telling her daughter and her daughter's friends and her neighbors and every person she encounters about Jesus Christ? Mom. Forever and ever. The miracle comes on the margins. And the miracle of healing is available for you and for me. And it'll happen when we're desperate. So don't throw away your desperation. Don't throw away those moments and say, ah, I could, I could have done without that. Do you think mom would say that? No, she would say that moment changed my life. And it changed Jesus' life. May we be the type of people in the week ahead who look for opportunity in desperation. Who does that? The church must do that. And may we be the kind of people that first see where the margins are in our hearts, where we struggle to let Jesus in, where we're still counting on systems. And may we ask for his renewal, his compassion. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Gracious God, we're thankful for this remarkable story for the real life change that you brought to this courageous, amazing woman. For how each and every one of us has places of desperation that at various points we probably just think if we keep it to ourselves, it'll get better. We just you know, need to deal with it. Pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No. This day we say our places of desperation are uniquely yours to shape and to mold just as we are. Thank you for moms. Thank you for their courage. Thank you, God, for reaching out much, much, much further than what you originally said you came for. Thank you for bringing us in. May we increasingly look for opportunities to bring others in to your joy, especially those among us for whom the system has failed and desperation is high. May we have compassion. May we follow mom's example this week. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.